Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, April 7th, 2021, and you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Happy Easter, everybody, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, in the second part of our show, we're going to be talking with Father Sebastian Walsh about his new book, Always a Catholic, How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life and Bring Them Back if They Have Strayed. Father uh, Walsh is a Norbertine canon of the Abbey of St. Michael in the Diocese of Orange, California, where he's also a professor of philosophy for the seminary program. After he completed his studies at St. Thomas Aquinas College in California, he continued his studies at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and received a license in philosophy Later, he attended the Angelicum in Rome and got a master's in sacred theology and a doctorate in philosophy. Uh, He also ended up being a visiting professor at the Angelicum. I am looking forward to that interview. It is going to be fascinating. Now, that interview is pre-recorded, but we are live right now. So if there's something that you would like to tell us about what's happening at your parish, feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. want to welcome everybody listening to us here locally on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn Bryan College Station, and also listening to us in Central Texas on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco. And a shout out to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. As usually, I am joined in the studio by our general manager, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you? I am doing great, Deacon Mike. How are you this morning? I am doing absolutely great. I am still on that Easter high since we are still celebrating the Easter holiday. We are in the octave of Easter, which means it is still Easter. Easter. It's Easter. And um, I always find it interesting that the church has done this with Easter because it so closely follows the Jewish tradition of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, mm. which you would celebrate for seven straight days. Yes. And so we have Easter Sunday, and then we have the octave of Easter, where for the next seven days, we celebrate Easter. Right. We're supposed to be partying it up. That's right. right and the two of us certainly are. Feasting. Feasting and all around enjoying ourselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's Lent is over. Yes. Yes. Uh, before we get too far into the program, what I'd like to do is go ahead and uh, pray our prayer to St. Joseph uh, because, again, we are in the year of St. Joseph. Awesome. And uh, so let us begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O blessed Joseph, faithful guardian of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, protector of your chaste spouse, the Virgin Mother of God, I choose you this day to be my special patron and advocate, and I firmly resolve to honor you all the days of my life. 
Therefore, I humbly call on you to receive me as your adopted child, to instruct me in every doubt, to comfort me in every affliction, to obtain from me all the knowledge and love of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and finally, to defend and protect me at the hour of my death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And a quick reminder that if you pray this prayer during the year of St. Joseph, it does carry a plenary indulgent or uh, instead of the usual partial indulgence. And the thing to remember, of course, about plenary indulgences is that we have to have a um, separation from all allegiance to sin and also, we need to go to Holy Communion and Confession. Easier said than done, that exactly. uh, complete detachment from sin. Yes. Uh, but it is the intent that counts. God knows our weaknesses, and he does not hold us to a standard we cannot achieve. Right, and it's, it's not, it doesn't depend on us. we got to depend on God, right? Exactly. Trust which, in his mercy. Yes, which... We will talk a little bit more about in a, a moment, but... Uh, Just a little tease there. Yes, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that, you know, we tend to speak of St. Joseph quite a bit at Christmas time. Yeah, sure. We tend not to speak to him so much at Easter, and yet it's always to remember that the whole idea of the uh, genealogy of Christ given to us at the beginning of Matthew's gospel mm -hmm, is to mm -hmm. remind us that Jesus, as the lineage of David, he gains that through Joseph, his father. Right. And right. so it's always a reminder that even Easter has a connection to St. Joseph. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about, since we are in the season of Easter, we usually celebrate on Holy Thursday, the institution of the Holy Eucharist. And usually during the Easter season, we then celebrate First Communion for those children that yeah, exactly. are receiving it. And so, you know, throughout this past year, we have been instructing those children who are coming into that age range where they're mm -hmm. first receiving Holy Communion, trying to instruct them so that they have an understanding what it is because they have to be able to discern what it is that they're receiving. Right, Getting them fitted for their white tuxedos and exactly. their... Exactly. All the important stuff. Now, uh, a <laughs> uh, little aside, um, when I was um, for in formation to the diaconate, we had to provide proof of all our sacraments. Well, I was baptized in Germany. Mm. I was confirmed in Copper's Cove. And I also received First Communion in Germany. Mm -hmm. Well, those records never made it to the original Church of Baptism. So my proof of, bap uh, of First Communion is a picture with a date written on it of really? me in my nice little suit with a big candle that we uh, used to hold. And uh, it's... Something that uh, I just cherish the picture because it's a reminder of uh, that's a, a holy sacrament. And I think, you know, the tradition of, you know, dressing up in mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. best 
First communion clothes and uh, receiving first communion is now, folks. A there's thing. another picture that goes along with that picture that Deacon Mike's talking about, and it's of him making a sour face before he had his first communion, and that's the picture that made it onto the. That's actually the picture that made it onto the cover of Father Sebastian Walsh's book. <laughs> He's been razzing me about that picture of that little boy being me, and it's actually Deacon Mike that's on the cover. Uh, if you look at the picture, everyone will agree it's obviously a picture of Thaddeus. Oh. Uh, we'll throw that up onto our Facebook. Uh, we'll have to let, do that. Let y'all we'll have, have, yes, have a look uh, at it. Yes, we'll have to throw it up on the Red Sea uh, Facebook page, and you all will just have to tell us who you think it looks like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as I said— hear. It looks like Thaddeus. <laughs> uh, Thaddeus, you wanted to talk a little bit about something happening at uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Oh, yeah. Uh, really neat uh, parish event there. They are showing a new uh, documentary series from Formed called The Search, and it is happening on Thursdays at 7 p.m. It's in the Parish Activity Center, so it's in person. That's exciting to hear about that kind of thing uh, starting up again at parishes. It begins on April 15th. So you can, uh, you know, finish your search for all your tax records uh, earlier that day. And I know tax tax day got moved back. Just a little joke, folks. Um, And then go to the search at uh, St. Thomas Aquinas at 7 p.m. starting on April 15th. It runs April 15th through May 27th. And little blurb describing it. it. The search leads people to the deepest questions of the human heart, exploring the meaning and the purpose of life. And it's really pitched not only at um, Catholics, but other Christians, atheists, agnostics, confronting those deep uh, age-old questions of, you know, why are we here? Why is there a universe at all? Where did it come from? What is the meaning of life? The search, check it out, April 15th. I really liked when I first saw uh, the program being uh, advertised by Formed and the title of it, The Search, because it is a constant reminder that as human beings, we have this innate desire to know, the innate desire for the truth. And so all of us are searching. All of us are asking those questions. Every one of us, whether we admit it or not. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the program isn't going to have all the answers, but the program's going to remind us that there are answers. Right, right. And so what we need to do is never stop asking the right questions. Exactly. And uh, most of the time, those questions are not answered on Facebook. Uh, No. (laughs) But we are going to get some answers on Facebook to our question about... Who's actually on the cover of Father Sebastian Walsh's book? Coming up in the second segment. That's right. Uh, One other thing we would like to talk about this morning a little bit is this Sunday, the second Sunday in the octave of Easter, is now known as Divine Mercy Sunday. And for those of you that might not be aware of where that name comes from, it comes from the revelation that was given to uh, St. Faustina Kowalska. Uh, fascinating story, if you have not heard it. Uh, 
St. Faustina was an uneducated Polish nun uh, who had a revelation of Jesus. And um, her spiritual director asked her to write it down, uh, all the things that happened to her, write it down. Uh, 600 pages of these revelations are there. And this happened in 1938. Jesus also instructed her to have a painting done of how he appeared to her. And so for most of us, we have seen the painting of divine mercy, uh, Jesus standing there. And um, it's not a um, flat painting. It is actually showing Jesus in motion. And I find it fascinating because it shows him moving towards us. And so uh, the painting has the phrase, Jesus, I trust in you, at the bottom of the painting. And um, when we talk about all 600 pages of um, St. Faustina's diary, we sometimes might get caught up that this is so much information. So let me give you the simple gist of the divine mercy message. It is ask for his mercy, be merciful, and completely trust in Jesus. If you want to know what the divine mercy message is, that's it in a nutshell. It is a reminder that God's mercy is free. All we have to do is ask for it. Mm -hmm. But in order to receive it, we have to be merciful. Mm -hmm. And in our lives, there's only one person we have to trust. And that is Jesus. And you have a deep attachment to this feast day because how do you end each one of your sermons? Every one of my homilies ends in Jesus, I trust in you. Yeah. And I always tell people that is not so much intended for the congregation. Hmm. That is a reminder to me that every time I go up there to give a homily, I have to trust him because I have no business being up there. Yeah. And yeah. so Beautiful. I have to trust him. Beautiful. All right. Uh, I invite everyone this Sunday, pay close attention to uh, the readings and also the homily and also the way the church is decorated. Uh, I think that it's important for all of us to be reminded that God's mercy is free of charge, that we are always at his mercy and that we have to share that mercy. We're going to have to take a break. Uh, when we get back on the other side, as I said, we're going to be talking to Father Sebastian Walsh about his book. So I have a great hope that everybody's going to enjoy that. So see you all on the other side. back and as promised in a moment we're going to be talking to father sebastian walsh 
the author of Always a Catholic, How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life and Bring Them Back if They Have Strayed. This is an important topic, especially nowadays, uh, when we hear so many young people leaving the faith. And it's an interesting look into the things that we might be able to do to influence that. Father Walsh, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you, Deacon? I am doing wonderful. Now, you are a Norbertine father. Would you explain to our listeners what exactly that is? Oh, sure, yeah. So the, the Norbertine order was founded, not surprisingly, by St. Norbert. And, uh, and this year we're actually observing the 900th anniversary of the foundation of our order. So that's uh, almost half the time of Christianity on the face of the earth has been populated by Norbertines, which is a really beautiful thing. And it's a, a sign of the enduring um, relevance of our charism as Norbertines. But um, we're founded by St. Norbert in 1121 on Christmas Day, and our order was founded primarily as a response to the Gregorian reform that Pope St. Gregory the Great, who died in, I think, 1075, he reigned until 1075 as Pope, the, the reform movement that he initiated. So at that time in the church, uh, there was a crisis both at the level of religious life and at the level of the priesthood, um, not too unlike what we have today. Um, and you had some really wild things going on. And I mean, priests that were living in concubinage, they were, they had, you know, girlfriends living in their rectories. And, and then sometimes uh, you, as St. Peter Damien says, that they had homosexual behavior. It was all these terrible things going on. And then the religious side, people were living like kings, you know, in religious life. And they were basically using religious life uh, for the sake of the honor that you're getting from the people. There was all these things going on that was terrible. And Pope Gregory the seventh um, decided to to begin a reform movement. You know, he established these different canonical uh, laws and penalties for those who were not living according to the um, the mind of the church with regard to the priesthood and religious life. And that movement <clears throat> found or took its root in the soul of two great figures of the next um, century. And that were those two great figures were St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who helped reform the religious life and St. Norbert, who helped to reform the clerical life. So our order, the charism of our order, is the reform of the of the clergy, of the especially the priesthood. And in St. Norbert's mind, that was um, primarily affected by way of uh, proper devotion to the Eucharist. It all centered around the Eucharist. The, the purpose of the priest, more than anything else, is to bring Jesus and the Eucharist to the faithful. And so um, St. Norbert realized that we had to have worthy celebration of those sacred mysteries and to have worthy celebration of those sacred mysteries that meant not only, uh, you know, a reverent and solemn liturgy, but it also meant a moral life, which was consistent with the sacramental reality that was signified in the offering of the holy sacrifice of the mass. And so uh, St. Norbert insisted that priests live together in a community like the first apostles did, you know, Jesus sent them out two by two, and they, they live together in a community um, that they have authentic poverty and ascetic life, where they were really denying themselves the goods of this world in order to live for the goods of the next world. And then um, finally, the um, that life 
that is centered around the worship of God so that everything in in the life of the Norbertine priest, the Norbertine canon, we're called canons, um, was ordered to the worthy and reverent celebration of the sacred liturgy. And that meant, you know, the proper celebration of the mass by the following of the rubrics. It meant um, beautiful chant and prayer. It meant um, worthy, um, you know, vestments and so forth, all the external sacramental aspects of the offering of the holy sacrifice of the mass that went along with the moral dimension and the soul of every, every priest. So that was the idea. Our Norbertine order was um, was founded as a clerical reform movement. And um, so as it's maybe more relevant than ever um, and needed for this time in the church. Well, actually, that brings two thoughts to mind. The first is that in a way, this is very reassuring because when you look at it, this is not the first time these things have happened in the church. That's right. And they have been turned around. And so just because, you know, they reoccur doesn't mean they can't be fixed again. I think so. And it's interesting because, you know, that reform movement began in earnest almost 40 years after Pope St. Gregory VII died. Um, he, He died in exile from Rome, seemingly a failure. And it was 40 years later that God raised up St. Norbert and St. Bernard of Clairvaux and started stirring the heart and the spirit of God's faithful to respond to that Gregorian reform movement. And and I see in St. John Paul II a figure much like Pope St. Gregory VII. And uh, he's only been dead for you know 10 or 15 years now um, since I guess it was 2005, right? Or 2000, was it 2005? Or 2004 yeah. when he passed away. 2005, April, 2005, I believe. 2005. So it's been 16 years now since he died, and um, and so, you know, God moves slowly sometimes. The church moves slowly, but I'm I'm hopeful and in anticipation that in the next couple of decades we'll start to see God moving the hearts and raising up great saints again, once again to reform the life of the clergy and reform the religious life. But I think uh, you hear a lot of talk about the JP2 priests, the young men that chose to become priests because of the example of St. John Paul II. And I think the same sort of thing we see in the priests that came after uh, Pope Gregory that took his message and put it into practice and I think this is I something so. hopefully we're going to see in the future in this age. It's my hope and even my expectation that that will happen. Now, the other thing worth mentioning is that you just completed uh, the new uh, Abbey, St. Michael's in yeah. California. Well, by a happy stroke of divine providence, our abbey was completed in the 900th anniversary, the 900th year of our order. And so, um, by God's grace, the the um, the abbey is flourishing and thriving. We have lots of young men. I think currently, right now, we have 33 seminarians in formation. And last I heard, we have 12 young men applying for next year. And I don't think we're going to have room to accept all of them. And we've just moved into a new abbey with all this extra room, and there's so many young men coming that even now I think we're going to, you know, we may not be able to accept all of them. And that's an astounding um, indication of God's grace that he's really assisting our community and giving us 
really excellent young men who are excellent vocations. I know that um, that you and Thaddeus bo- both um, know some of our young men here at the Abbey, and you can attest to the fact that they're they're not just you know vocations that are sort of you know I couldn't do anything else with life. They're they're young men who had the whole world in front of them, and they chose to follow Christ in religious life. So we've got this this beautiful new Abbey. It's uh, nestled on about 300 acres in Silverado Canyon in Southern California, one of the last undeveloped parts of Orange County. And um, and it's a beautiful Romanesque style uh, monastery. And the, the church is not yet finished. Um, because of COVID, some of the artisans from Europe have been restricted from coming into the country. But as I understand it, there was um, some are, have been able to enter now and and the altars are going to be installed in the coming weeks. Some, I think some frescoes, the tabernacle, the altar rails, and uh, and the church will be consecrated on May 4th. Um, and then we'll be able to, to use the abbey in earnest in full. We have a big, beautiful Romanesque church and a Romanesque abbey. And um, and later on, there's the artisans I think are coming from Italy to install the mosaics. The mosaics are already here, but we don't have a way of installing them yet. And so that may yet take some time, depending on the, the restrictions from Italy, both coming and going. But in any case, um, you can go to um, Google or one, one of the search engines and just find St. Michael's Abbey in California. And then I think there's a little button about the, the new Abbey and you can see pictures of the new Abbey. And it's very, very beautiful. And especially I think when those mosaics are finally installed and everything is there, it'll... Um, It'll look very much like a church did in the time of St. Norbert. It's that same style. That was the reason we chose the Romanesque style. And um, and it's something that, you know, gives objectively great glory to God and lifts the soul up on you. When you go in that church, your your soul is lifted up to heaven and the beautiful, um, you know, sacred images that are there and beautiful acoustics, I might add, for our chant. So it's a very, yeah, the... It's a great blessing, and it could not have happened without extraordinary generosity on the part of many benefactors. I think the um, the total amount of money that we sought to raise was over $120 million. And um, we're still, of course, we're still paying, you know, we had to take some loans. We're still paying some debts off of that. But we're hopeful that God will bring, you know, bring us whatever we need to um, to be able to complete his work for his glory. I think in a way... For several years, we lost sight of the fact that the beauty in our churches, in part, attract people to them and inspire them to be involved. And yeah. I'm glad to see in a lot of cases, in a lot of dioceses, that emphasis on beauty in the building has re-evolved. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I'll tell you an interesting story. I remember one time someone telling me how he was in India and um, and they were going past some uh, roadside shrine or something like that, and there was a there was a little box for donations for building a some sort of a church, and this poor cab driver put some money in there, and this man was very upset that this poor cab driver would be giving money to a church when he was very poor. And so he, he said, why are you doing that? Why are you giving money to this church when you, you know, you can barely provide for your family. And he said, I'm so poor that I would never see anything beautiful unless there were a church built in which I were welcome because I can't go to the beautiful homes of the rich. 
but I want to be able to, with my family, go someplace very beautiful, and the church is open to all, and it's our common property. And I thought that was a beautiful insight. You know, the churches, especially for the poor, because many of the poor don't have access to these very beautiful things because of their own income or money, but they do have access to these beautiful things in the church and to be able to bring themselves and their family to see um, beautiful, um, uplifting architecture and, and beautiful artwork is something that um, the church is open to all, rich or poor. And that's uh, the same sentiment that built a lot of the cathedrals in Europe. The idea that the, I believe so. the cathedral belonged to the people and they would offer to build the cathedral because it was theirs. They would never live in a house like that but they would always mm -hmm. belong to that cathedral. That's right. They and their children, then their children's yes. children, you know? So I think it's a beautiful sentiment. And, and many people, you know, not just the rich, but many people, even very poor people, have contributed to the, the building of our abbey, and in particular, the ornamentation of our abbey church. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And Jesus will reward them greatly, not only in this life, but in the next. Well... The real reason we have you on today is to talk about your new book, Always a Catholic, How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life and Bring Them Back if They Have Strayed. And this is from Catholic Answers Press. Tell us a little bit about how, what made you decide to write this book. <laughs> well, um, for, for many years now, I, I uh, assist at a parish in San Clemente here in Southern California, Orange County, called Our Lady of Fatima. And, uh, and I noticed that the faithful um, were really desirous of um, some deeper catechesis, some assistance in, in confronting some of the very difficult problems that the modern culture po poses for Catholics. And uh, so what I decided to do is once a month, I would have what's called an open forum, uh, open forum question and answer for difficult questions about the Catholic faith. I said, well, I'll make myself available to the faithful, whoever wants to come. And I'll just allow them to ask whatever questions they want about the Catholic faith, and I'll do my best to answer those. And um, and I kind of got the idea because for years I'd been doing uh, you know radio interviews with Catholic answers, and sometimes I would do exactly that in open form about whatever people can just and ask whatever question. And um, and so I thought, well, I should do that for my parishioners, which I did. And originally, maybe twenty or thirty people would come, and then after several months, it would be close to a hundred. And sometimes half the church would come over after mass. And it was a beautiful thing to see just how hungry people were. And they really wanted to know answers to these questions. Well, the number one question, which comes up in those open forums is how do I keep my kids Catholic or how do I help them come back if they've left? That is the number one question on the minds and hearts of Catholic parents today. And I'd answered that question so many times in so many different forms and permutations um, during my, you know, question and answer periods that I um, I started giving talks just to talk addressing just that, you know, like an hour long talk at a retreat or something. And and one day there was a Catholic answer apologist present at one of these talks that I gave. And he says, Father, you need to put that into a book and and that way Catholic answers can provide that to, the you know, everyone. So I did. I wrote, sat down and wrote it all into a book and added some greater detail and some more particular questions. And that's that's how the book came about. It was in response uh, just to the needs of the faithful. And I think it's the 
far as I can tell, the number one concern on the hearts of Catholic parents in, in the United States, if not, you know, throughout the world. At the beginning of the book, one of the things that struck me is that you focused on the pursuit of happiness and the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, ultimately when you ask people, what do you want to do with your life? You know, the answer you always get is, you know, I want to do this and this and this. And the thought never is, you know, well, why do you want this? But ultimately the answer <laughs> is always, I want to be happy. And I, yeah. I like your approach because that's what your, our faith does for us, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So so that um, that came out of, that arose out of my teaching of high school students. I teach among other things, philosophy, and in particular, I, I will teach an ethics class. And um, so ethics always begins with, like, what's the ultimate thing you're seeking by making choices, and what differentiates a good choice from a bad choice? And the basic answer is, a good choice is one that's going to lead to your happiness, and a bad choice is one that's going to make you unhappy. And so then the question becomes, you know, how do I do that concretely? So I would often do this kind of back and forth with the high school kids. I said, why are you sitting in my class? You know, and they'll say, because we want to get a good grade, Father. And I say, why do you want a good grade? And I say, we want to get into a good college. And then why do you want to go to a good college? Well, because I want to make lots of money. You know, and then I ask them, well, why do you want to make lots of money? And then that's when they get frustrated because in their own mind, the way the culture is anyway, they're taught like, well, money's the ultimate answer to these questions. Mm-hmm. If I have money, I have everything, right? And I say, well, actually, no, um, I know lots of people who are rich that are unhappy. And I also know lots of people who have a vow of poverty like myself are very happy. And so uh, it's not really clear to me that money's the, the end here. What is it that you really want? And they they finally admit, well, I want to be happy. They have a hard time believing that, that they can be happy without being rich. But in any case, that's the truth. And if you and if money didn't make you happy, you wouldn't want it. And And so I'm trying to get people to explicate that fact that really we're all searching for happiness. And then the question is, what is happiness and how do you get it? And that's when you hear crickets from the high school because they have no idea. It's like, I tell them like, that's a bad idea. <laughs> if you, if you want to go somewhere and, and you didn't even know where it was on a map, you just started driving, that wouldn't be very good. huh? So the same thing is applicable to our practice of the faith. Um, there's only one reason why your children will remain Catholic and only one reason why they'll leave the Catholic faith. And that is they'll remain Catholic if they think being Catholic will contribute to their happiness. And they will leave the Catholic faith if they think that being Catholic will make them unhappy. But this That's is what one it comes of the, down to. But this is one of the points you make in the book also. Telling the kids isn't good enough. They have to see it in the lives of the parents. Absolutely. So rule number one is if you're not practicing your, hap- your, your Catholic faith with joy and happily, how do you expect your kids to want to stay Catholic? You know, if you're miserable, you're sad, you complain, um, your, your practice of religion is all about fear, you know, and, you know, if I don't do this, I'll go to hell. If you don't do this, you'll go to hell. And everyone, that's the only thing they talk about and think about. It's just really just this fear-based view of the world. They're afraid of everything and they're, and everything's, uh, you know, just one cross after another without any view that the passion and the resurrection of Jesus was ordered to, you know, I mean, the passion of Jesus was ordered to his resurrection. You know, it's like a Calvary without an Easter. Um, You get this kind of mode of Catholicism on the one hand. And on the other hand, you just get people who are just culturally Catholic that are just miserable and 
They expect their kids to stay Catholic when they don't see that their parents are happy about being Catholic. So that's the number one rule is be an example of joyful practice of your faith. And if you're not joyful, then you got to figure out a way to, to relearn your faith, to re-practice, start practicing your faith in the way that it brings you that joy that, that should be, you know, that's missing, that shouldn't, um, shouldn't be missing. One of the other points you make in your book is the importance of fathers in the families. And I find this fascinating because, especially in our culture today, the concept of God as father is attempted to be toned down. But even secular studies will show the importance of the role of a father in a family and especially in our faith life. Yeah, that's right. Um, I actually cited, cited a, a study, I believe it was, it was in Sweden. And the question basically that was presented is, um, in a family, um, what effect does the faith of the father and the mother have on the faith of the children? And what they found was that in families where the father was very devout in practicing his faith, and regardless of whether the mother was or not, the children, I think the number was 85% of the children ended up being devout. Whereas conversely, if the mother was devout in her faith, but the father wasn't, it was about 50% of the time the children became devout and 50% of the time they, they weren't. And I thought that was striking because it, it runs counter to what you're kind of told, namely that, um, you know, the bigger effect on the religion of the children, the religious aspect of the household as the mom um, and that might be as a result of the fact that, uh, for the most part, women tend to be more religious than men. I think that is a true statement. Um, certainly, in my experience as a priest tells me that there's a lot more women in mass than men. Um, but what it doesn't account for is the fact that fathers have a much bigger impact on the faith of their children than they expect, than they realize, and apparently even a greater impact than the mothers do. Um, I, I do think that 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 study has some limitations, meaning that um, it's really studying people in the middle of their lives. I do really believe as a priest, I've noticed a lot of people at the end of their lives, especially when I go to, to see people on their deathbeds, they often return to the faith of their mother. And so in some way, I think the mother d- does get kind of the last say <laughs> about, you know, about the practice of the faith, even if their children were wayward through their most of their adult life. Um, but nevertheless, as far as the practice of the faith throughout their life, the father has a, a striking role to play. And um, and in our culture, we tend to say to leave that to the mom. But that's the, the husband and father in a family is the priest of his little ecclesial church. And, um, and a, a husband can't um, abdicate that very grave responsibility to be the spiritual leader of his family. Just reminding our listeners that we're talking with Father Sebastian Walsh about his book, Always a Catholic, How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life and Bring Them Back if They Have Strayed. Now, Father Sebastian, how important is it for the family to live out their faith actively, go to Mass, even go to daily Mass, prayer at home, things like that? Yeah, well, there's... There's no substitute for that. I mean, if you really think that the practice of your faith is necessary for happiness, and that's what you're telling your children, um, this idea where there's this this complete disconnect or divorce between 
how you live your life in this life and what's going to happen to you at, in the next life, um, no one will really be convinced by that if they say, well, we do all these things in this life so we can be happy in the next life, but we don't, we're not really interested in doing them in this life. We're really all about just seeking wealth and the comforts of life. And at the same time, we, we, um, you know, we call ourselves Catholic and we receive the sacraments kind of pro forma. If you're not really excited about the practice of your faith, and if you're not really dedicated to prayer and a personal relationship with our Lord through prayer, if those things aren't happening, then no one's going to really be convinced that this is really something essential to your happiness. And so it's absolutely essential that families um, go beyond the bare minimum, you know, that, um, that they go beyond just going to Mass on Sundays, and that's it. Um, the faith should be at the very center of your life. You know, I remember one time when I was a teenager uh, visiting the home of a friend of mine uh, who they, they had a very strong Catholic identity in their family. And you go into the dinner table, and what are they talking about? The Pope's latest encyclical and arguing back and forth about, you know, what's going on in the church. Those sort of things were just always the topic of conversation. And and families where they pray our daily rosary together. If this one single thing I could say, like do this one thing, and that'll more than anything else help your kids stay Catholic, the answer is pray a family rosary without fail daily. Pray that family rosary every day. Um, it's amazing what that does to the faith of children. But as you mentioned, you know, where possible, getting the daily mass. That's another great thing that you can do for your family. Getting a regular confession, not just once a year, but, you know, maybe more like once a month or whenever the kids feel like they need it. Um, and then, again, talking about the faith, making it a constant topic of conversation at the mealtimes and just your ordinary interaction with the kids. Um, let the faith be something that they're immersed in when they grow up so that they see it as part of their identity and not just some icing on a on a secular cake you know and i think the two thoughts that come to my mind one is that even if you take your kids to confession and they decide they don't want to go them seeing you going to confession is priceless absolutely yeah seeing their their dad on their knees praying seeing their dad going to the confessional and and seeing the good effect it has on him he becomes a better father after leaving the confessional, you know, for, for going to confession. Um, you know, that's a really important thing. If your children see you're a better person, you're a better parent and a better spouse because of your faith, then that's going to go a long way to convincing them that this is going to help them be happy, too. And um, that reminds me, actually, of a something else that I, I put in my book that I think is really important. As I mentioned before, typically... In a, in a marriage, one spouse is going to be more devout than the other. Um, sometimes they're pretty close, and, but that's more often the, um, the exception than the rule. And so typically you're going to have either the husband more, more devout than the wife or vice versa in most Catholic families. And sometimes you'll just have, you know, a practicing Catholic for the one spouse and the other won't, won't have any um, practice of Catholic faith or any faith at all sometimes. And very often the Catholic or the devout spouse makes a huge mistake. And the huge mistake I've seen over and over again is 
they're, they're so concerned that their children receive the Catholic faith because, of course, they're very devout and interested in that, that they see their role as protecting their children from their other parent, from their spouse. Mm-hmm. And they'll be critical of their spouse. They'll be they'll say, don't be like your father or don't be like your mother. They'll say all these things. They'll be getting all these arguments with their spouse over the fact that they're not practicing the Catholic faith or they're not a good example in the Catholic faith to their children. And what's the net effect of that? The net effect is not that the children are, you know, convinced like, oh, yeah, you know, that um, we should be better Catholics. The net effect is that children see the Catholic faith as the reason why mom and dad are always arguing and why mom or dad are rejecting each other. And they see the Catholic faith then as a wedge that drives their parents apart. And that is the most fatal thing you can do. The truth of the matter is our Catholic faith tells us the the believing husband sanctifies the unbelieving wife and the believing wife sanctifies the unbelieving husband. And therefore, what your children need to see is that because you're a Catholic and you're devoutly Catholic, you're a better spouse. You're more loving. You're more affectionate. You're more attentive. You're more sacrificial. You're kinder. You're less critical. Those are the things that your children need to see. They need to see that that mom, because mom's a Catholic, she's really devoted to dad and she doesn't berate him. She doesn't belittle him. She doesn't worry about, you know, his practice of the faith. She prays for that and she's a good example, but that's it. Or conversely, dad, um, he, he doesn't criticize mom, but he's just a really good loving husband to mom. And because he's Catholic, he's a better dad. He's a better husband. And when kids see, oh, the Catholic faith, is a reason why my parents are closer together rather than farther apart. Then the children believe, oh, that's the faith that I want because I want my marriage and my family life to be that way. So um, that's a huge mistake that I think even very devout Catholic parents make because they're afraid and they're, they're trying to control the outcome and they have to realize, no, you, you have to, you know, do your part of the deal without being critical or, um, you know, or driving a wedge between you and your spouse because of the faith that your children will never see that as a reason to be Catholic. Now, one of the important questions from parents is always, well, how do I counteract all the influences of our modern culture in our children's lives? Because it is so anti faith, but also teaches the exact opposite sometimes of what our faith emphasizes. Yes, that's right. You know, years ago, and I say years ago, I'm talking about maybe my own childhood. Um, it, the, the culture was, you know, in some ways indifferent to the Catholic faith. There were some positive things, some negative things. I mean, way back in the 50s before I was born, you know, the number one rated show on television was Fulton Sheen's Life is Worth Living, you know, and he had these A-list actors, you know, like Bing Crosby and the Bells of St. Mary's and all these Catholic movies where priests are the heroes and things like that are coming out. And um, and there was a big change that happened in the culture, and that started with a sexual revolution. And suddenly the Catholic Church started becoming, you know, the enemy of women's rights, the enemy of free love, the enemy of you know, um, doing things in a way that made you feel good. And, 
And slowly but surely, that's turned into the modern culture, where literally the modern culture is like a raging river going the other direction. It used to be in the 50s, you could just put your kids in the culture and they would just, even if they weren't swimming, they'd be carried along by the, you know, the positive, you know, views of the Catholic faith and they could stay Catholic their whole life. But now today, you're swimming against the stream and it's a, it's more than a stream. Like I said, it's like a raging river. And, um, and that happens not only at the level of the secular culture, it also happens in schools that call themselves Catholic. In fact, um, I have a chapter on that in, in my um, in my book about these putatively, but in fact, falsely Catholic schools that um, in some way, the, the faith of your children is more in peril at these so-called Catholic schools than at a secular institution, because it's precisely the ones that are falsely Catholic that know exactly how to attack the faith. And no one knows how to destroy the faith as well as someone who used to be a Catholic and who's really, you know, rejected the faith. So um, parents need to be on guard. They need to be vigilant. And that begins with the education of their children. Um, there are really two principal sources of um, negative cultural influences on your children. One is what you let into your home via, say, the Internet, the television, and things like that. And parents need to be extremely careful about the content their children have access to. Most parents have no idea what their children are seeing on the Internet. And I can tell you as a priest in the confessional, parents are absolutely in the dark about what their children are actually seeing on the Internet. And that goes from everything from pornography to, um, you know, anti-Catholic propaganda to predators on the internet, all these things. And they think their kids are just doing fine. They're just doing their school or just doing entertainment on the internet. They're wrong. And I'm going to tell you that. And if you're a parent who thinks that your kids should be able to be on the internet without that much supervision, um, you need to have a serious examination of conscience because the, the soul of your children is in peril and you'll have to account for it to God. So that's one thing, what you let into your home. And you have to be very careful and you have to be kind of strange very countercultural about the internet and your kids having iPhones and things like that. Forget all that and, and, you know, make sure that your children's experience of the world is not badly influenced by those things that are coming in through TV and internet. The other thing are the things outside your home. And that has to do with, um, first of all, the educational institutions you send your kids to. And secondly, their friend group that, that they're allowed to spend time with. So, um, you have to allow your children to be socialized to keep them to circle the wagons is not a solution, but you also have to be willing to find um, pockets and places of strong Catholic identity where your kids can find like-minded friends and families and they can spend time together and, um, and also um, excellent, good content that might come in, you know, that, that you allow your children to see, for example, EWTN on cable TV or something like that. But um, there has to be excellent content and and the other stuff, really, the parents have to be able to carefully be a gatekeeper over what comes into their homes via the Internet and television. Now, there are things in our culture today that are considered mainstream that we I know me growing up, we would never even have talked about, much less considered normal. How do we talk to our kids about things like uh, 
homosexuality, gender dysphoria, prevalence of abortion and contraception. How do we even yeah. broach these topics? Yeah, so the first thing is that um, we need, as parents, we need to be aware of the fact that that our children's innocence is something to be protected and guarded, that these are not things that should be brought up at any age. Um, even something like divorce should not be something that your children realize is a possibility until they get to a certain age where they're able to, to distinguish and, and, and think through things a little bit on their own. You know, you shouldn't tell a four or five-year-old about, you know, oh, so-and-so got divorced or something like that. I think it's really important that you protect the innocence of your children until they get to an age-appropriate, you know, age. Now, the problem is, as I said, that if they're exposed to the culture, the, the wider culture, what can happen is that someone other than you gets to your children and raises these topics before you do. Um, I think of the many cases I know of, you know, uh, parents, they have to send their kids out to play soccer or they have, you know, AYSO or whatever. And they come back as 10 year olds and they've been shown a picture of pornography on the phone of one of their 10 year old soccer buddies, or they come back and they say, um, you know, two of the girls on my soccer team want to get married to each other. You know, they get these things, you yes. know? And so um, one thing is, like I said, be very careful who your kids associate with and, and uh, don't just, assume that everyone's going to be okay with regard to that. And, and then number two, you know, when they get to an age that is appropriate, you're going to have to raise these questions and you explain to them without um, graphic images or too much detail, you explain to them, you know, the, the, um, the truths of the Catholic faith and the truths of the natural law. And, and you can say, well, anything which isn't in accordance with this would be wrong. And, and it's something that very many people are deceived by in the world. So you don't have to get into all the details. What you really should do is explain the positive side of the Catholic faith, the positive elements of the natural law and, the, and, and what God's plan is for marriage and family and for male and female and those things. And then, for example, you say something like this, um, the only um, proper context for intimacy between a man and a woman is within a marriage where they're committed to one another for life and where they're open to having children with one another and raising those children. Any other form of physical intimacy outside of that would be wrong because that's not in keeping with God's plan for human flourishing and for um, the family. And, and then you say, if, if anyone raises any questions about these things, um, or they talk to you about it, make sure you come to me and we'll talk it through. And I'll let you know, you know, what's, you know, why this is um, not in keeping with God's plan and how you might respond to people who are, who are saying those things. And so you make sure the lines of communication are open. Whatever you do, if a kid, you know, raises a question or something like that, don't react with shock and, and, and you know, where did you hear that? Don't ever talk about that. That kind of thing is not productive. You have to be able to say, okay, Let's let's talk about that. Where did you hear that? Um, what did you think that meant? Let's talk about it, you know, and let them ask their questions. Um, let them sort of have their say and then come back and and do your best to gently explain, you know, what's right and what's according to God's plan. We're down to just a couple of minutes in the interview. And 
The last thing I wanted to ask you about is you make a statement in the book that it says that parents always need to remember that God loves their children more than they do. Yes. And I... Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just... This is such an important concept. Yes. At the very beginning of the book, I begin with a, a little prologue that says having children is a, is a risk. Um, your children have free will, and no book is going to guarantee that your children are going to stay in the faith. Even Jesus lost one of his 12 apostles, and he did everything perfectly. huh? So um, there's always a risk. And, and the one thing that parents often make the mistake of doing in trying to keep their kids Catholic or trying to bring them back if they've left is out of fear, out of deep fear for the, the loss of their children, they try to control their children and they try to take away their free will, their freedom um, by means of threats, by means of, you know, arguments, by means of, you know, pen pecking. That's a big mistake. Um, God gave your children free will and that's a risk. But what makes that risk possible is the knowledge that God loves your children more than you do and he has more power to help them than you have. So knowing that God has that power and that love for your children should give you great confidence. And don't be afraid. You know, God is working through the life of your children in ways that you don't see. And what he needs from you is prayer and confidence and trust and maybe a few tears. But don't worry. Um, God loves your children more than you do. Thank you, Father Sebastian Walsh, and uh, I encourage everyone to tune in next week when Gene Wilhelm will be our host. And until then, when weighing the things of God and the earth, always round up. See?